we believe you are God and in control. Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Brand, a ministry of Worship Generation Church located in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. We believe in the power of the gospel. We believe you can transform every soul. We believe you're the Savior. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. Let the nations be glad, all his saints rejoice. Then let the people sing praises. When they conquered people, to suppress people and subjugate people, you just you just took those people, you stripped them down naked, and you hammered them to a cross, and you let them hang out there and die while people walked by and looked at them. The atrocity of it is almost, in our generation, we can't even wrap our minds around it. Now, if we were in the previous generation, the World War II generation, we could imagine these atrocities because of what went on in World War II. But it's hard for us in our generation, post-World War II, even the Korean-Vietnam generations, it's harder for us to uh, grasp this. Even though ISIS did things like this to believers in Syria and Iraq and Kurdistan and those places, it's still hard for us to grasp this. But the brutality. So these are professional people filled with hostility and wrath against God saying, crucify, crucify. But, you know, we do see the hostility to Jesus Christ in our society. And we see uh, intolerance toward the message of the gospel. And we see violence against people who represent all that's the gospel, the person of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ. And we do see that the injustices come against those people more often than not in the so-called intellectual circles. So to some degree, we can picture it. But it's one thing to beat people up because of different political views on a modern on a college campus in America. It's quite another to demand for someone to be stripped down and beaten and executed in your group of people. You've crossed the line, and these people crossed the line. It's a line that none of us in this room ever want to cross. We don't want to cross that line. We're, we just, at any time, with any humanity, it's hard enough being a man of war and war, and God draws a distinction between death and war and death and peacetime. He did so with uh, Joab, in uh, David's general, in Samuel. But we would never want to cross this line. And if you study people who cross this line, they never come back and they're never quite the same. Praise the Lord, we live in a time of peace by and large, like the time of Solomon. We just don't know. But there's a line you cross. And I've talked to people who have been in major combat and they, and they talk about they don't they don't want to talk about it. And these people, these are religious leaders, and they did this to Jesus. It's not just a wholesale failure of their position that God gave them. It's a wholesale failure of their humanity. It's a crime against humanity. Because even Pilate says he's innocent. So it's not just, it's, it's a crime against humanity, and it's a crime against their king. It's, it's, for me, it's just so hard to comprehend, but actually, it's not. So they were insistent. They said, crucify, crucify. In verse 23, they're insistent, demanding. Now, we know from the other Gospels that a riot was about to begin. They're losing control. You you begin to lose control. And we can picture different scenes. Uh, The Bolshevik Revolution, the original old footage that you see of that in Russia when the communists came to power. Or maybe like, I don't know, the various coups that happened in South Vietnam when the war was going on. 
or when Ceausescu was removed in Romania, or, you know, there's images we have that when people are a mob, like uh, when everything began with the, this, the Arab Spring, and, you know, just how it gets going, and once it gets going, it's hard to stop it. And Pilate, even with all his Roman authority, he was afraid. And, you know, you don't want to report to your superiors that you lost control of, a, of the, the stewardship that you had being in charge. He's a very powerful person in charge of an important area where they had a lot of insurrection. And so Pilate was in a tough place. It's hard not to feel some empathy for Pilate. But as they were insistent in verse 23, we understand it was on the verge of being a riot and losing control. And they would have been prepared for that because all the men, Jewish men, come to Jerusalem for the feast, one of the three feasts, Passover being the big one, if you will. And they would always be ready for it. And even so, and then finally we read in verse, it says in verse 23, they prevailed. In verse 25, Pilate delivered Jesus to their will. But remember, that's an interesting phrase, Pilate delivered Jesus to their will. But what did Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane a couple weeks ago? Not my will, but thy will be done. You see, Jesus was submitted to the will of the Father, and we know that. In 1 Peter, it says this concerning uh, suffering wrongdoing, and Jesus suffered great wrongdoing here, and we suffer wrongdoing sometimes, but especially with personal attacks, and maybe you've, I mean, it's really about Jesus, but still I would say maybe you've endured personal attacks at work, family, friends, relatives, attacks that weren't true. Maybe as I was reading these things, I did that you thought of things that people have done to you. And there certainly would be application for that if you've ever just in the human experience experienced that, let alone for faith in Jesus or for righteousness sake, as it says in the Sermon on the Mount. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter many years later said this about when you suffer for doing good, like Jesus here. And who is he who will harm you if you become a follower of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, and you do not be afraid of their threats, nor their trouble, or nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as an evildoer, that those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Whatever we might have suffered at any given time of injustices, and I know some of your stories in this room, you have suffered injustices by evil people against you with lies and malice and falsehood. The beautiful thing about Jesus in this story is he, he hasn't, he's only done good. He's above reproach. Now, sometimes we suffer because we've been foolish. And David, we can relate to David because David always said, oh, man, I was stupid, and then this happened, and, but it's still unfair, and maybe that's a classification we can come under. But I just think the attack, any personal attack that you or I could ever go through, it's good to measure it by these verses because this is unbelievable. And this is what believers do go through in other parts of the world on a consistent basis in a large portion of the planet for their faith in Jesus Christ, where it's not even personal that someone doesn't like you because they work with you. It's because you are ambassador of Jesus Christ, and there's nothing new under the sun. Jesus, we're told in Isaiah 53, like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter and opened not his mouth. 
which is the second point I want to bring up here tonight. The innocence of Jesus. I've already touched on it, but I'll touch on it again briefly. Verse 4, Pilate, representing common law and practice, the courts. He is the supreme justice in this situation. He is the highest court that you can appeal to at this certain time other than appealing to Caesar like Paul would do generations later. He said, plain and simply, the moment they brought these false accusations, he's a politician, he's a Roman, he, he, he can read people, and he just goes, I find no fault in this man. Jesus was above reproach. He also says in verse 14, I have found no fault in this man. And then again in verse 22, he says, why, what evil has he done? I have found no fault for death in him. Three times, even as Jesus prayed three times, the cup would pass from him. Three times, Pilate, the law of the land, declares no fault in Jesus. And it goes without saying, and it's something I consistently proclaim from the pulpit here, Jesus, of course, was sinless. He lived a perfect, sinless life. Born of the Virgin Mary, not born of the same DNA that we're born of. He lived a perfect, sinless life. This is a crucial truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ and the church message for every generation. For if Jesus is not born supernaturally of the Virgin, then he's born like you and me, and he's got the sinful nature in him. But he has no earthly father that passed on that sinful DNA. For in Adam all sin and all die, but he is the Son of God and the conception of the Holy Spirit, the immaculate conception of the Holy Spirit with the Virgin Mary is a mystery that none of us can completely understand intellectually, let alone theologically. But this we know, that Jesus was without sin. And we are told that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Also, the very next verse of what I shared in 1 Peter earlier, 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. You see, we always emphasize this with the gospel, but it's the two-for-one package that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, not his. And That is reckoned to our account, so he pays that price. But then his righteousness of the perfect life that he lived is imputed or reckoned to our account when we put our faith in him. Thus, his perfect sinless life that fulfilled God's law of perfection, when God gave the Ten Commandments and his entire law in the Old Testament, the one who lives by them, the one who does them will live by them. And to fall short in one part of the law is to be guilty of all the law. So when we talk about God's law, we're reminded that there's not really a distinction between misdemeanor or felony, okay? To, to break any part of the law puts you in the failure category. Now, society would draw a distinction between a felony and a, a misdemeanor for obvious reasons. And society, even in, in the civil law of God in the Old Testament, the punishment for crimes varied because there is a distinction between being negligent with your animal versus taking someone's life premeditated. So even God would draw those distinctions. But the distinction of being righteous before God and being able to go to heaven based upon your own good works is quite clear. Either you're perfect or you don't go to heaven. And I've used this analogy many times, but when my son Timothy was at Cal State Maritime and uh, his major was maritime transportation, 
and he had a number of things, a number of classes that were pass-fail, and they required perfection. They required perfection. So you had to know every uh, flag sign. So every flag that a ship flies that communicates with flags, you had to know every one of them. And if you missed one on the test, you failed that class, and it put you a whole year back at Cal State Maritime. And it was the same thing with the C-knots. All these different C-knots, you had to have every one of them correct, pass-fail. So again, so when Timmy would take those tests, let's, take the, let's say there's 50 flags. If he gets 49 right but misses one, and someone else gets one right and misses 49, they both fail. In the pass-fail, they both failed. They're both out, okay? It's 50, it's all or nothing. There's not a grading curve. It's all of it perfection, or you fail. And that's how God's law is, the moral law with us. Either we're, we can save ourselves or we can't. But that we can't save ourselves is obvious in that Christ came and died for us. Romans chapter 3 tells us very clearly that, that by the deeds of the law, by keeping the Ten Commandments, no flesh can ever be justified in his sight. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And God is a debtor to no man. So no one's ever going to stand before God. Not any generation before us, not our grandkids' generation or the generations after them. No one preceding us from Adam to this day, following us from the day we breathe our last and are gone from this planet, no one is ever going to step into the next dimension, stand before God and say, you're a debtor to me because I was perfect. It can't happen. It won't happen. So all world religions and all philosophies fail. Only Christ on the cross is sufficient because only Christ lived a perfect sinless life. So only he has the righteousness that can be properly imputed to our life for our account by his perfect sinless life. And then his death on the cross is a sufficient substitute for the consequences of our sin, for the wage of sin is death. And he died for us. And someone there has to be a substitute, which we'll get to in a minute. And he died for our sins. So his death is the punishment for our sins, the acceptable sacrifice, and his perfect life is the acceptable, perfect life imputed to our life, to our account. So it's mercy and grace. We don't get the judgment, mercy, and we get the righteousness reckoned to our account, the grace. It's like you have a massive debt with the bank, and they relieve the debt, that's the mercy, and then they give you a bunch of money, and that's the grace. It's mercy and grace. That's what happened with his perfect, sinless life. And his death on the cross, when we put our faith and trust in him, this death on the cross is, covers the punishment for our sins, and this righteousness is imputed to our life. That's how we get to heaven. There are no other ways. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. So there had to be a substitute, and Jesus is a substitute. But there's nothing more to say in Jesus is innocent. And I do, before I move on to this final thought, draw your attention to Herod the Tetrarch. Jesus didn't say a word to him. And you know, sometimes there's just nothing to say. We talked about this last week. It is what it is. Sometimes there's just nothing to say. Herod the Tetrarch was the political representation of the region in the northern region of Galilee there. Herod the Tetrarch beheaded John the Baptist, the greatest of all prophets. He listened to John the Baptist, but then he made the hasty vow with Herodias and then had John the Baptist beheaded. When the Pharisees said, you better leave Galilee because Herod's coming for you. And Jesus said, you tell that fox, I'll be raised up on the third day. That's what he said earlier on in Luke. You know, it's just interesting to me that Jesus said nothing to Herod the Tetrarch. Hey, do a trick, do a musician, just a, a, a magic trick. You know, you're the magician. And he's like, 
We think about the stare, the look that Jesus and Peter shared when the rooster crowed last week. I would like to see the look between Jesus and Herod the Tetrarch. Herod's all, hey, do something. Yeah, do something. Yeah, I want to see a trick, you know. Just think of the link of John the Baptist. He beheaded the greatest prophet of all time. And here's Jesus. And there's just nothing to say. He said nothing. And again, like Isaiah said, like a lamb stood silent before his shears, he was led to the slaughter and said nothing. Which brings us to the final point of our night tonight. Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is a murderer. He deserves to be strung up on the cross. He deserves to be executed. He's facing capital punishment. He's an insurrectionist against the Romans, so Annie murdered somebody, and however one might justify it under any circumstance, this guy is on death row. He's condemned. Let me say that again. He's a condemned man, and he's on death row by Roman decree. And so the perfect sinless son of God is... Pilate begs the people for sanity, but they will not heed it. And they say, crucify this innocent one and release the guilty one, which, of course, is the gospel. The just for the unjust. It is the just for the unjust. Jesus is paying the price that Barabbas should be paying. And the the incredible thing about Barabbas is there's the Barabbas in us all. Barabbas really represents every one of us in this room. He represents all of humanity because he is under a death sentence. And as I said earlier, quoting Romans, the wages of sin is death. We're all condemned. In Adam, all sin, all die. Or as David said at the end of his life to his son, I go the way of all men. It just is the way it is. And Barabbas is released. No bail. Uh, no probation or parole. He's just released. And Jesus next week is carrying his cross and he's headed for the, to the execution, point of execution in the place of Barabbas. Now, something interesting is recorded for us in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus, the law, there's different things prescribed for declaring someone clean or guilty, trespass offerings, all these different offerings. But the interesting one is the declaration of the healing and the cleansing of a leper, which there's no record of in the historical books, but there's instruction for how it would be determined if a leper were ever cleansed. And leprosy, of course, is a huge type of sin in the Bible. It's defilement. And remember when Jesus touched the leper, though, he's not defiled by the leper, he heals the leper. See, we might defile one another, but Jesus, the touch of Jesus, he's not defiled by us, he cleanses us. Okay, so in the law of the leprosy in Leviticus 14, there's an interesting thing by which a leper would be declared clean. Two birds, two birds. And the life is in the blood. We know that in the Old Testament. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. So from Abel bringing his first offering to the Lord in the Old Testament with blood from the flock, to all the sacrificial offerings in the Old Testament from the Passover lamb, which Jesus replaces in this very day, there's blood. Because life is in the blood, and the wage of sin is death. So somebody innocent dies, and their blood is shed to forgive someone else who's guilty. It's a substitution. It's substitutionary sacrifice. Well, in this Leviticus 14 instruction, 
It's two birds to declare a leper clean. One bird is executed, and the blood of the bird is sprinkled on the other bird. And then the cleansing is declared, and the other bird is released. One bird dies, and the blood of that bird is sprinkled on the bird that lives and flies away, and the leper is declared clean. It's figurative of the gospel, and it is very figurative of Barabbas and Jesus in this text. One bird's going to die, and the blood's going to be shed, and the other bird is going to fly and be free, Barabbas. An incredible picture in the Old Testament for our salvation in faith in Jesus Christ. As many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. When we receive Christ, the sprinkling of the, of the, the innocent bird is sprinkled on us, and we're set free. When we give our life to Christ, the Barabbas in us all is Christ is going to the cross instead of us for our sins, and we are set free, not by Pilate, but by the King of kings and Lord of lords, the judge of all, Jesus himself, who paid the price for us. The example and the story of Barabbas is an incredibly beautiful picture of what has happened for us when we gave our life to Christ. Maybe you have been despondent. I don't know everyone here tonight, so I don't know your story. But religion creates despondency, and I know from my own life. Because as I tried to be a good person to earn my way to heaven, I, like balancing a checkbook, I could never get out of my debt. And I could never do more good than bad. And I just had this idea that if I had more good than bad. And the despondency of that drove me to such despair that I did have the attempted suicide in 1987. And when I look back over all that, one of the things that really led me to that dark place where I'd actually attempt to take my life, and I seriously attempted to take my life. It, was not, it wasn't a joke. It was legitimate. I, I went down thinking I was down. I'm very grateful that I wasn't. My, my, I can't even imagine if that's when my life ended at the age of, but God's, God was good, and he woke me up, and I lived, and I'm here this day. But I had despondency of a religion, and the despondency was I could never do enough good to offset the bad, and I could never know I was going to heaven. And it was from the ashes of that colossal despair in my life that I read the Gospel of John for the first time, that I, I bought a study Bible, a Schofield study Bible, that I began to listen to K-Way, particularly Raul Reese and Manna for Today, Greg Laurie and Harvest, and, and Brian Broderson and Back to Basics in 1987 and 88, well, 87. And I, I understood this gospel of grace that we see with Barabbas tonight. And I understood that I couldn't earn my way out of debtor's prison with the Lord but I just had to receive the release that I was getting through faith in Jesus Christ. And I can declare confidently, and many of you have sat under my teaching for years and you know this to be true, I believe I have a proper, healthy understanding of grace because I truly am saved by grace. It's not in my head. It's in my heart. I truly am born again. And it wasn't uh, an intellectual thing. I was born again. And the Holy Spirit in that house that used to be my dad's house in the spring of 87, when I read, it is finished, it all came to clear to me that Jesus Christ paid the price for me and I had been set free. And I could live my life for him, not with a fear of failure, but with hope in spite of failure. That I wasn't hoping for victory, but from now on, I'd be coming from victory. Because whom the sun sets free is free indeed. 
Ladies and gentlemen, we are radically saved here tonight by this great Savior, this King of the Jews, rejected by his religious leaders, the people that were entrusted by him and his father to to point the people, Uh, stood silent before the one who executed and beheaded his great friend, his good friend, and the greatest uh, prophet of all time. He, He just, he did this for us. And when Barabbas was released, I always picture Barabbas looking like a, kind of like a, just kind of an everyday guy, you know? But when I saw the Passion movie, if you can remember the scene of Barabbas, it totally changed my perspective of Barabbas. In the Passion movie, Barabbas is a raving lunatic. Remember that? I don't need to reenact it for you. because, But he, I was like, whoa, I did not see that coming. Because I've taught the Barabbas study before, but I always picture Barabbas kind of like, hey, it's just a little misunderstanding, you know, we're zealous Jews, you know, as, no. That, so that's how I want to picture me as Barabbas. The Barabbas in the Passion movie is, is a madman. And we're mad men and mad women without Jesus Christ in desperate need of a savior. We don't look good as Barabbas. We are out of our mind and we need a savior. So tonight we praise the Lord. Amen. You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Brandt. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com, where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. And also follow Pastor Joey on Instagram under the tag name at Joey Baran. Thanks for listening and God bless. Not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed, not ashamed of the one I love. Not ashamed, not ashamed.